You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated, church. We move into a new series today called Week Made Strong out of the book of 2 Corinthians. We have a video for you to watch to introduce this sermon series. So if you would, sit back, turn your attention to the screens, and then Pastor John will be up afterwards. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called second or two Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all of the Corinthians, realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor. He earned a meager living through manual labor. He was under constant persecution and suffering. He was often homeless. And to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul. They were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials. And this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it. And so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying that God's spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now, the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. 
The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded. Not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful, just like Jesus himself. Now, this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah, Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which at its heart is a story of generosity. Paul says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor, or wealth, and he lowered himself to die like a poor slave, so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who's more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. In the final section of the letter, Paul focuses on the main source of his conflict with the Corinthians, that group of impressive leaders that he sarcastically calls super apostles. So they came to Corinth promoting themselves and bad-mouthing Paul as a poor, unsuccessful leader. And at the risk of sounding self-promoting, Paul says, do these guys really want to compare credentials? he can totally take them on. Are they Jewish Bible experts? Well, so is Paul. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. He has the whole Bible memorized. Do they want to brag about their superior knowledge of Jesus? Paul has actually seen and hung out with the risen Jesus. He's actually had visions of Jesus' heavenly throne room. But more importantly, Paul has given his entire life to the mission of Jesus. He sacrificed comfort and stability, and he never asked the Corinthians for money. Unlike the super apostles who charged a lot, Paul earned his own living. 
But, Paul says, he refuses to brag about these accomplishments because these aren't the things that really matter as a Christian. Instead, what he'll brag about is how flawed and how weak he is because it's in those inadequacies that he discovers the love and mercy of Jesus. Or as Jesus once told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect through weakness. Paul concludes the letter with a sober warning to the Corinthians. They need to check themselves. Their contempt for Paul, his way of life, their love for these super apostles, it all shows that they don't grasp who Jesus is on a fundamental level. They're not living like transformed followers of Jesus, and so he invites them once again to humble themselves before the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians gives us a really unique window into the life of Paul and the paradox set before us by the cross of Jesus. The cross challenges our values, our ways of seeing the world. We value success, education, wealth, but God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the suffering death and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross also unleashes the transforming power and presence of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to take up his cruciform way of life and make it their own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. So no surprise, you can turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, eighth book in the New Testament. And once you get there, may want to put a ribbon there or a marker there, hold that spot because this is where we'll be uh, for summer of 2023. We'll be walking through the book of 2 Corinthians together. So if you go there with your copy of God's word, and, and as you find there, let me just say it's a humbling, overwhelming thing when I stop and think about all the lives represented in this room and, and those who are watching online as well, and to consider the struggles and the hurts that many of you have gone through in the past, or maybe the struggles and the hurts that many of you are going through present. I know every Sunday people walk into this room or they join us online, and a lot of people perhaps have been going through physical struggles, whether it be cancer or chronic pain. Maybe a lot of people in this room today, in this house today, or watching online have gone through relationship struggles whether that be in your marriage or in parenting or with your parents, with friends. A lot of people going through financial struggles, whether it be a financial struggle at work or a financial struggle in your personal life at, at home. Think about the emotional struggles that, that walk into this room every Sunday, whether it be depression or anxiety or loneliness or grief. Think about the spiritual struggles that all of us this past week walked through temptation, sin. So I think all every Sunday, that, that overwhelming thought of everyone who walks in here, either you have gone through difficult times, maybe you're presently walking through difficult times, maybe you're about to walk through a season of, of suffering. And the Bible doesn't treat this reality of suffering with trite answers or small answers. The Bible really heads suffering, faces suffering head on with, with answers of truth in, in such a way that really the weak can become strong because of the truth of God's word. God's word gives us a foundation to stand on in the middle of the disappointments of life. With your copy of God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and this letter also comes from Timothy to the church of Corinth, our brother, 
to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Don't close your Bibles. I wanna show you four bedrock truths, four bedrock realities that I pray will strengthen you, whether you're presently walking through a difficult season or can be certain that you will walk through a difficult season in the days ahead. Maybe some of y'all, you haven't been through a difficult season, you're not in a difficult season, you don't think you'll ever go through a difficult season. Maybe you wanna write these things down. One, just in case you do go through a difficult season one day. But secondly, maybe you have a friend or a family member that even right now is going through suffering, a trial, a season of difficulty. And so these are four realities that will provide you, I hope, a rock to stand on in the middle of what seemingly feels like sinking sand all around you. Here's the first point. God is familiar with all suffering. Uh, yes, God is sovereign over all suffering, but he's also familiar with all suffering. Go back to this passage, chapter one, verse one. Look at the beginning of verse three. Chapter one, beginning of verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't, don't miss this. The, the God who is sovereign over us is also not far from us. God is not unfamiliar with what is going on in our lives. No, instead, this God who is with us in Christ, this Father who is the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, literally, Jesus is God who is with us. God came to earth in, in human form and in flesh and identified with us in our own weaknesses. Jesus came to earth and identified with our own frailties, our own pain. So I could ask you this question this morning, are, are you hurting today? Jesus experienced hurt. Are you lonely today? Jesus has experienced loneliness. Have you been betrayed before? Do you feel betrayed today? Jesus has experienced betrayal. 
Uh, are you experiencing loss? Have you experienced loss before? Jesus understands loss. He has experienced loss. Jesus was mocked and, and was beaten. He was spit upon. He experienced the deepest forms of, of physical and relational and emotional suffering all at once and all at the hand of his own creation. Jesus knows what it's like to cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? You see, in this, there's actually comfort for us. The God of the universe understands all suffering. The God of the universe sees your struggles. He, he hears your cries. He understands your pain. And in Christ, he knows how you feel. God is familiar with all suffering. Secondly, God is the source of mercies and all comfort. I love the next phrase here in verse three as we see the description of God being the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we see this other description, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Literally, the language here is God is the originator of all mercies. He is the father of mercies from whom all compassion flows. Compassion flows from God through his mercy towards you. And I love the fact that it's not singular, singular mercy, it's plural mercies. In other words, God doesn't have just one mercy at his disposal. He has all mercies and is able to distribute all mercies to you. He's not the God of comfort. He's the God of all comfort. God is the source of all comfort. In other words, he is sufficient for all comfort that you and I might need. He is sufficient for all the comfort you and I need in this life. And that word comfort becomes a key word in the entire book of 2 Corinthians. We're gonna see it listed 29 times in this book. And if you didn't count just then and a few moments ago, we've already seen it 10 times in the first 11 verses. The word comfort is a key word in, in the book of 2 Corinthians. And it's a very beautiful word. The word comfort means to, to come alongside and serve. It's the same description of the Holy Spirit in John 14, in John 15, John 16. The Holy Spirit who is a, the comforter. He is the one that walks alongside us. He is the one that comes to, to serve us. I love the way that Paul stresses all when he writes about comfort in verse 3 because he's going to say that in verse 4 as well, that he comforts us in all affliction. So we have all comfort in all our affliction. Then Paul adds any affliction in the middle of verse four, if your Bible is still open. So let's kind of make sure we understand what's happening here in verse three and verse four. God gives all comfort in all affliction and gives all comfort and all mercy in any affliction. So think about the implications of this, friends. First of all, it means that no one else can provide what God provides. If he gives all comfort, that's pretty much all the comfort we're gonna need. God gives all comfort. But the second implication is this. There is no situation in life, absolutely no situation in life that we will face that is beyond the comfort that God is able to give. That's what Paul says later on in the, in the letter to the Philippians and uh, the, the church at Philippi when he says, God is sufficient to meet all of your needs to the glorious riches of Christ Jesus. God does not comfort us here or there God does not just help us in this type of struggle, but not that type of struggle. He comforts us in all struggles and all hurts at all times. So mark this down, Highland. God's comfort always outweighs your suffering. God's comfort always, always outweighs your difficult 
days. This is what Paul is saying, with your Bible still open, in verses eight through nine. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but instead to rely on God, this God who raises the dead. This burden, Paul says, this despair that we were experiencing drove us not to rely upon ourselves, our own strength, our own personality, our own experiences, but instead it drove us to rely on God and he is sufficient for us. In other words, God proved to Paul to be the source of all mercies and all comfort. Thirdly, a third bedrock truth from this chapter, from these verses, we are comforted for the sake of others. God's comfort, in other words, when God's comfort comes to us, it does not just stop with us. It does not just stop with our own comfort. Go back and look at verse three and verse four again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, plural, and the God of not just comfort, but all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that. English majors, English teachers, former English teachers, those who took an English class at one point and have forgotten everything you ever learned, this is called in English a purpose clause or a clause of purpose. So that, why does God comfort us in our affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, we share with others the comfort that we've received from God through Christ. Look at verse six. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and for your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Are you hearing this, Highland? Paul is saying right here, I embrace suffering because if I embrace suffering, I know that God will comfort me. And when God comes to comfort me, I'm just gonna pass that comfort along to you in your days of trouble, in your days of, 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 of suffering. Comfort from God certainly must grow stale if we just hold on to it ourselves. That comfort must be passed along. This is the theme all throughout 2 Corinthians. We are comforted by God for other people's sakes. In this letter, Paul emphasizes how God comforts him so that the overflow of that comfort might just spill over to others and others might be comforted with the same comfort Paul received from God. Let me just say to you, in case you have not thought about this yet, this is a radical way to look at suffering. Because when you and I suffer and you and I go through difficult times, we become very self-centered. We begin to look into our lives, our situation, our hurt, our pain. But God is urging us right here through his word not, not only to be God-centered instead in our suffering, but also to be others-centered when we suffer. What if we began to believe, even this summer, we began to believe that whatever happens in our lives, yes, is ordained by, by God and his, his goodness and for our good, but if we also believe that everything that happened in our lives, even the difficult days, when God meets us with comfort in those difficult days, that comfort is supposed to be just passed along to others. That would take away from our individualistic mindset if we moved away from that and thought instead, what if I don't think about just what does this mean for me? Because often we go through difficult days and we say, God, what are you trying to teach me? What if instead we say, God, what are you trying to teach me and 
In what places can I pass this comfort on to others? What if God is not just teaching you? What if he has given you comfort that you're not supposed to just hold on to, but to pass along? What if he desires you to use your situation and your circumstances, and listen, even your suffering to teach others about the comfort of God? Fourthly, God is our hope and God is our victory in our suffering. He is our victory, he is our deliverer, he is our hope. Look at verse 10, look at the middle of verse 10. I love this little phrase, and if you're an underliner, this would be some great words to underline in, in chapter one, verse 10. On him we have set our hope. That'd be a great little phrase to hold on to this summer. On him we have set our hope. See how suffering comes full circle here? God is using suffering for for our sake. And as we experience suffering, he shows his sovereignty, he shows his sufficiency, he shows his compassion and his comfort in ways that you and I would never see otherwise. What if life was only always easy? And I know some of you right now are thinking, yes, that'd be great actually, if life was only always easy. But if it was only always easy, Would we learn just to rely on ourselves and rejoice in circumstances? Or in the difficult seasons of life, even the days of suffering in our lives, is it pressing us instead to rely on God and rest in his comfort in the middle of the suffering? Malcolm Muggeridge, interesting name, had a very interesting life. Malcolm was born in England, born into a family of non-believers, atheists. Um, actually, his dad was uh, a leader of the Communist Party in, in England. He grew up and kind of went from, from atheist to agnostic and joined the, the military in England and became a spy and actually was a spy in, in North Africa, became a spy in, in Moscow, became a spy in India. And after he saw the effect of war, but also the effect of spying and all the lack of truth, Malcolm turned his life to Jesus Christ and became a, became a believer. I actually had a really interesting experience getting to, to meet um, Mother Teresa in, in India and wrote a book about her life. And he was just so moved. And toward the end of his life, he, he wrote a book um, called Something Beautiful That God Does. And here's what he says as a 75-year-old man. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at that time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. I wonder if when we get to 75 or beyond, if reflection of our own life, we would have to say the same thing. It, It wasn't the greatest experiences in life that caused me to press into the presence of God. It was the difficult situations. It wasn't the easy things that created character and brought out the character of Christ in my life. It was the days of suffering, the days of of difficulty. And, And we see in this passage here that God is our victorious deliverer. So even in the most unhappy moments of life, even the most suffering moments of life. God is the one who delivers us. Look what it says in verse 10. He, God, delivered us 
from such a deadly peril, and he, God, will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Do you see the picture here of temporary deliverance and ultimate deliverance? Or temporary deliverance and permanent deliverance. In the middle of a trial in this world, you need to know, we need to know that God, yes, he does have the power to deliver us. Never ever doubt that God has the power to deliver you. But sometimes that's hard to believe when the deliverance isn't coming. It's often easy to forget this when deliverance isn't seen or or the cancer continues, or when the struggle in the relationship continues, or when grief from your loss persists. Don't stop believing that God has all power to deliver while also believing that God is wise enough regarding the timing of that deliverance. And I've said this before, maybe a year ago, I I would imagine we've all forgotten it. I almost forgot that I said it myself, but here it is. It may be on earth or it may be in God's kingdom, but God always delivers. How will we see and know and experience in the sufficiency of God if everything is always easy in our lives? It's in the midst of despair. This is what Paul is saying. I don't know if you understand the language here, but it is probably what you think it is. Paul thought about ending his life. Paul felt like he was at the end of his life. He was in so much despair. It's in the face of death. It's in the cauldron of hurt. It's in the the crucible of disappointment. It's in the fire of pain that we discover the comfort of God and his sufficiency for us in every situation. This is when the weak become strong. That God is our deliverer. No matter the suffering in our lives. Would you stand with me, please? And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us today that you are familiar with all suffering. Every difficulty we have gone through, we are going through, we will go through, God, you understand it because in Christ, you have identified with our weaknesses, our frailty, our pain, our hurt. And God, in that, we praise you that you're the God, not just of mercy, but the God of mercies. Not just the God of comfort, but the God of all comfort. Who meets us in the middle of our difficulty, who meets us in the middle of the the suffering. And God, pray that you you would take us away from this mindset of the individual. That when we suffer and when we're comforted, we're supposed to just hang on to that comfort. No, God, your word reminds us today that sometimes we suffer to receive your comfort so that we may comfort others. God, we praise you today that you are our sufficient hope, our sufficient victory, our sufficient deliverer. So it is on you that we have set our hope. Not on the easing of the suffering, We don't even set our hope on deliverance itself. We set our hope on the deliverer. So our hearts are set on him. This is how the weak become strong in Christ. It is through the name of Jesus, our deliverer, our great hope, our victor, that we pray together. Amen. As we sing this last song, the altars will be open. Perhaps you'd want to come and just lay some of your hurts or lay some of your disappointments or lay some of your suffering before the Lord. Maybe you'd want to come and pray and just say, God, I've been looking at suffering all wrong. 
I thank you that you have comforted me in the suffering, but God, would you help me find opportunities this week to comfort others with the same comfort I've received from you? We'll have some prayer leaders here at the front. They'd love to pray with you, pray for you, battle with you in prayer. Our elders also will be at our elder stations, the far left, far right with their spouses. They'd love to pray with you, anoint you with oil. If you're here today and you're suffering physically, maybe sick, ill, a surgery that's coming up, they'd love to pray over you. If you don't know how to pray, you'll see some prayer requests listed on the bottom of the screens. You can just pray and celebrate with your church family. But let's, let's leverage this moment. Highland, family, let's leverage this moment to come before the Lord, to kneel before him and to lay out your suffering, your hurt, your pain, your disappointment, and know that he is the God of all comfort. Let's sing, and won't you please come?